0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform 3.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Washington, D.C. policy-on-demand studio, where I'm thrilled to have back Pat Brown, PwC's international tax policy leader and Washington National Tax Service's co-leader. Pat, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Doug, it's great to be back with you again.
0: Your sixth appearance, Pat. Yes, indeed. So still (laughs) leading the way in appearances. (laughs) So Pat, you've been in this business for almost 30 years, and I apologize for dating you, Um, including roles at a major law firm, the Treasury Department, and at General Electric before joining PwC. Before we dive into the Green Book and today's relevant material, what is your perspective on the amount of change and disruption that we're seeing for multinational companies from a tax perspective?
1: Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it, I'm overusing unprecedented when I'm getting that question right. from people, right? Because it is such a period uh, we are in. It, I, I suppose, and this, despite the number of years I've been in practice, I was not in practice in 1986. Uh, When the 1986 Tax Reform Act happened, that, of course, was huge, really made some fundamental changes to the U.S. international tax rules. But even that was just the U.S., right? Right. It was just major U.S. tax reform. Uh, What we're looking at now is potential changes in the U.S., potential changes driven at the OECD level, potential changes driven by other major countries around the world, some in response to the OECD project, some not in response, some just basically you know changes that... They are otherwise looking at Um, it is a remarkable time to be a tax professional again i'm overusing these Mm -hmm. terms here because you run out of terms to use right Uh, but i have never experienced anything remotely like this in my career where uh, i mean just recently we get new rules on pillar one of the oecd project new proposed rules on pillar one of the oecd project so we we we're digesting these in like two week intervals trying to turn them around get up to speed on them, help our clients to understand them, then the next development comes out. At the same time, we're dealing with the green book. We're dealing with the pillar two model rules and commentary and so forth. And, and we're dealing with, and what will become of Build Back Better as it sits on Capitol Hill today. All of this happening at the same time. It's again, I'm overusing terms right. like remarkable and unprecedented, but that's all I've got.
0: As the glasses half full kind of guy that I am, I do like to remind people, particularly those that are new into the industry or looking to get into the industry and are coming out of whether it's accounting school or law school, and we're in fact looking at all kinds of other finance and even technology majors that it, it is a great opportunity from a job security perspective that Things continue to get way more complicated, and I think it just creates a lot of opportunity for professionals to help manage all of the compliance and risk um, that we're seeing in the
1: industry. Yeah, it's funny, Doug, you mentioned that point about career opportunities. I remember as a baby tax lawyer, people asking me, you know, why did you decide to go into tax and do you like it? And my response was, "I, I really do like it. And one of the things I love about it is it's always changing. It's always changing and so it never feels stale. There's always new material to learn. You feel like no matter how much you learn, you're still behind the curve. You're still trying to play catch up, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I felt that way 25 years ago. I really feel that way today. Uh, but again, that's part of what makes it really exciting. And to be sure, job security, absolutely. Right. But also just excitement. Just you know, a level of interest around what's going on. Dynamism, that is
0: fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one concern that I have is you, you mentioned like the Green Book and these various proposals and Pillar One and Pillar Two. Um, I, I sometimes have to remind you know some of our our team as well as our clients that you know, the the micro-tax changes that we're seeing around the globe are, you know, we've got jurisdictions that are still adopting, frankly, BEPS 1.0, Yes. right, yes. as we think about potential, you know, uh, the, the hybrid initiative, yes. and there's just so many various changes, yes. and a lot of us, and, and particularly on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast, we're focused on these big policy changes, yes. but there are a number of changes that are taking place across the globe, Absolutely. right, in addition to the U.S., which we spend a lot of time on, which I just think it makes it very difficult yep. for particularly our clients and taxpayers, just to keep up with all yeah. this. Yeah, and
1: neither one of us has mentioned yet ATAD, right? The yeah. Anti Tax Avoidance right. Directives coming out of the European Union. And ATAD 3 is where we are right now, with no doubt that there will be more coming right.
0: behind that, right? So, right. We're still not example. all the jurisdictions fully implementing exactly. the first two ATADs. <laughs> exactly. and, and just keeping track of all this stuff. Exactly. It, it, it is job security. <laughs> this is, my glass is half full. I'm not right. sure all of my clients our clients necessarily <laughs> and taxpayers feel like that. Right, right. All right, so let's talk about some more proposed changes. Yes, here. I, we're, yes. the, we're following up the podcast from Callum where we talked about the, the pillar two commentary. Right. Um, but today we're going to discuss the international tax provisions and some other relevant provisions found in the general explanation of the administration's fiscal year 2023 proposals. That is a mouthful, um, <laughs> but it's otherwise known as the green book. Despite the fact that I would note, and I would also like for anybody from Treasury to listen, that the, the first page of the green book on the PDF is not green. And so I, I would love to see that potentially changed, but that, that, that's a minor nit. Before we dive in, can you remind, and I had you on a year ago when yes. after Biden had, uh, had, had, you know, first taken over the presidency and we had a green book for the first time yes. in four years. Can yes. you remind our listeners what the heck is the green book? Yes. So,
1: so by tradition, but not requirement, um, every year the administration typically puts out a budget which is essentially the administration saying, these are our priorities for spending. This is where we think the government should spend money. Now, obviously spending decisions are made by the Congress, not by the president. Um, But as part of that, what the administration generally includes is, and this is how we propose to make changes to the revenue provisions of the code. In other words, how we propose to pay for things. Um, And that is, you know, the so-called general explanation of the administration's revenue provisions, that's the green book. So the green book is these are the changes that we, the administration, propose to make to the Internal Revenue Code to fund the priorities that we have included in the budget. So in a a simple explanation, that's what it is. Now, to be sure, it does not restate everything that's in the Internal Revenue Code or anything like that. It only focuses on these are the things that we propose to change It does include a description, so usually a few paragraph description, as well as a Treasury Department revenue score. Those are unofficial revenue scores because the official revenue scores come from the Joint Committee on Taxation on Capitol Hill, but it can be helpful in getting a sense of this is how the administration proposes to pay for things because it at least gives you a directional sense of this is how much money these changes would be expected to raise. So when I read the green book, I always read the descriptions of the proposals. I also always read the revenue
0: tables. Right. And the other thing I like about the green book and I encourage this for some people that are just new in the industry is that it usually it does a, a, a typically a, a pretty good job of explaining well, what is the state of the current law. Yes. yes so even does. if you don't know, you know, if you're still learning international tax, I think it's a great kind of primer to understand well, what what is the current yes. state of the law, and then how do they potentially want yes. to change it? Yes,
1: as, as long with reasons for change, which is also helpful right. if you're just learning the law.
0: So, Absolutely. Right, yes. All right. So, I, before we discuss some of these specific proposals, I think it's important, and to your this is further to your point, to understand what is the starting point the administration took when drafting the budget. Because to remind listeners, we have <coughs> the Build Back Better. Act that has been inat- or that has been passed by by the House, and right. it's still at this, as of the time of our recording, stalled in the Senate. Right. We understand that has been rebranded the Build a Better America. What is the starting point for this green book? Yeah. So, and this is
1: unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the Treasury Department, again, this is not sort of in a you know a Capitol Hill document that forms legislation directly. It's sort of a. It's a political document from the administration saying this is the direction we propose to go, which means Treasury has a fair amount of leeway around this stuff. They can establish their own, what we call, baseline. Um, Typically, the baseline for the Green Book is current law. right? That's the way you would think about it, So, because you're proposing to change current law. Unusually, what this Green Book does is it says, we are taking as our baseline the Build Back Better bill that passed the House of Representatives. Lock, stock, and barrel, except for one thing, which is the change that was made to the state and local income tax deductions mm-hmm. in, in Build Back Better. Everything else that is described in this green book assumes as a baseline, in other words, the starting point, uh, what was in the House passed version of Build Back Better. Now, I will say it is a little bit confusing as you read through the mm-hmm. green book because of the point we were just talking about, Doug, where you talk about, you know, current law and reasons for change. Well, sometimes in a couple of places in the green book, current law isn't current law. Right. Current law is what is described in, or what is provided for in Build Back Better. And so you have to do a little bit. Now they explain that. It's, mm-hmm. They don't try and hide the ball on that stuff as you're going through the green book, but you have to do a little bit of an additional exercise to kind of reframe your mind around, well, this isn't really current law, current law. It's current law as modified by the baseline that treasury has chosen. And that baseline is the Build Back Better bill, which passed the House mm-hmm. and has not moved to
0: the Senate. So including country by country guilty, yes. the changes to the beat, and we'll unpack some of this as we go through yes. some of the specific proposals, but yes. just to remind listeners. Yes. All right. So let's let's start at the top here, corporate tax rate change.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, um, so the Green Book proposes to raise the corporate tax rate to 28%. Um, this, of course, was in last year's Green Book. Uh, It was sort of a stunning, uh, I think, for a lot of folks, um, you know, wow, you know, is Congress really going to raise the corporate rate? Remember, we had a 35% corporate rate up until the 2017 tax reform dropped all the way down to 21%. Um, And the administration came right out of the gate and said, we think the rate should go from uh, 21 back up to 28. And the president has described this multiple times as essentially, giving back or taking back half of the tax cut that corporations got in 2017. So from his perspective, he would say, I'm not even going to take away all of the tax benefits you got in in, in 2017. I'm only taking back half of that, essentially. Now, that's not really accurate, as we know, Doug, because the 2017 tax legislation did a heck of a lot more than simply lower the rate from 35 to 21. There was a lot of base broadening in 2017. And so raising the rate up to 28% really reflects a significant amount of additional revenue relative to what what it would have been if Congress had simply taken the 35% rate in 2017 and reduced it to 28%. And again, going back to the revenue tables, you see that in the revenue tables. So the revenue tables in this green book for the increase in the corporate rate from 21 to 28% have a, an amount of revenue that is raised of about, I think, $1.3 trillion over 10 years. Um, that is a number, that we when, we when you and I would talk about raising the corporate income tax rate by a point, we'd say, well, that raises about $100 billion, right? $100 billion mm-hmm. over 10 years per point on the rate. Seven points here is getting almost twice that. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Well, going back to this baseline point, because the baseline in this green book Assumes things like the changes to guilty, like the decrease in the Section 250 deduction for guilty and FDII, which means that each additional point in the corporate rate raises a lot more than just $100 billion a point. Mm -hmm. So this is how you see some of these interactions playing out through uh, what is otherwise a relatively straightforward proposal, right? Right. Just raise the rate to (laughs) 28%.
0: Yeah, and and I'll remind folks that uh, obviously our Section 250 deduction, right, which is relevant obviously both for including guilty as well as our foreign-derived intangible income, those are a percentage based on the top corporate yes. rate so yes. so those you know the the tax on guilty will will obviously go up as well yes. as the tax on on FDII yes the other thing i think it's worth noting is that you know, moving us to 28 corporate rate to 28 plus the state local taxes would then move us again towards the, the top or towards yes. the, towards the top yes. of the OECD list and yes. kind of what is the norm now across most developed countries.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And of course, in 2017, one of the major reasons for reducing the corporate rate was 35% was the highest in the developed world. And we wanted to get ourselves back to effectively the middle of the pack or close to the middle of the pack with 21 plus the state rate on top of that, you know, landing companies in the 25% range, in
0: right. And I still, and you've heard me complain about this before, that it is a bit misleading, obviously, given the base broadeners that we had as a result of, of the, 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 the TCJA, and we really are the only jurisdiction at this point. Now we'll see what happens with pillar two with a top up tax type regime which yes. is which is known as guilty. Yes. And yes. uh and and so so even though our rate is lower the base is significantly broader than I than I think that we will we compare us to our, ourselves to a lot or when we compare the US to uh, other developed countries. Yes, absolutely. All right. So a topic that has gotten a lot of wind here on the cross-border tax talks is pillar 2. <laughs> And uh, what I wanted to do is actually read a few sentences because these are like three of the most ambitious policy (laughs) sentences that I think I can remember seeing in any of the green books over the course of my almost 25-year career. The the, the green book says, and and I quote, that the proposal would repeal the beat and replace it with a UTPR that is consistent with the undertax payment rule described in the Pillar 2 model rules. When another jurisdiction adopts a UTPR, the proposal also includes a domestic minimum top up tax that would protect U.S. revenues from the imposition of UTPR by other countries. Separately, the proposal would provide a mechanism to ensure U.S. taxpayers would continue to benefit from U.S. tax credits and other tax incentives that promote U.S. jobs and investment. A pretty close quote. Um, <laughs> A pretty <laughs> ambitious agenda from a policy perspective. So I want to unpack each of these. We'll hold off the UTPR till the end here okay. because we actually have some detail on that. But yes. let's start with the domestic minimum top-up tax. Yes. Is there any detail? What, in your view, does, does this mean, the sense that when another jurisdiction adopts a UTPR, the proposal also includes a domestic minimum top-up
1: tax? Yes, yes. Well, it, we seem to not be able to get enough of minimum taxes.
0: Right. Um, Recall that the baseline,
1: uh, as we were talking about, Doug, uh, for this year's Green Book includes the house packed version of uh, Build Back Better. That, of course, has a minimum tax in it. Right. Uh, So there is a minimum tax already kind of assumed in the baseline. Since the Green Book proposal doesn't say we're going to repeal that, presumably we would have that, plus we would have this additional domestic minimum top-up tax. So how would this work? Well, this is really intended very much to be part and parcel of Pillar 2, okay? So the base for this tax would be the Pillar 2 base, right? And obviously you and Callum talked about this um, the in pillar, the Pillar 2 commentary. The base for Pillar 2 is driven off of financial accounting right. standards, right? It's driven off of, for US filers, US GAAP. Um, it has modifications, of course. But when you go- come through the Pillar 2 rules, what you end up with is a base. You then ask the question, also under the Pillar 2 rules, have I paid 15% tax? Is my effective tax rate at least 15%? If the answer to that question is no, then you owe, under Pillar 2, you owe top-up tax. The way the Pillar 2 rules work, <clears throat> the top-up tax in the first instance is collected under something we would, like our guilty regime, mm-hmm. right? So a top, the top entity in the group looks down and would essentially impose top, top-up tax on all of the foreign affiliates of that group. Um, there are lots of issues with that construct. One issue with that construct is if you're a US company, that doesn't apply in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So the United States under the pillar two construct can be a jurisdiction where the rate falls below 15%. But our guilty rules, whether reconfigured under, uh, under Build Back Better or current law guilty, in neither case do our guilty rules, and indeed in neither case does the pillar two primary rule impose top-up tax in the home country jurisdiction, right? So no top-up tax is imposed by U.S. on U.S. multinationals on their U.S. income, right? What that provides then under pillar two is the opportunity or the ability for other countries to say there is a low-taxed affiliate in this group. Now, again, we're talking about a U.S. group, Mm -hmm. U.S. at the top. There is a low-taxed affiliate in this group. Where is that low-taxed affiliate? It's in the U.S. So other jurisdictions would have the ability to impose top-up tax under the so-called under-tax profit rule component of Pillar 2. So France, Germany, Japan, wherever they would be, if you're a U.S. multinational and you've got foreign affiliates in any of those jurisdictions and they adopt Pillar 2, their treasury departments would have the ability to impose additional tax on the U.S. company's affiliates in those jurisdictions because the U.S. is considered low-taxed. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, if I haven't lost our listeners completely, the qualified domestic minimum top up tax that's described in the green book is intended to prevent that outcome. It's intended to protect against the possibility that a U.S. multinational would be considered low taxed in the U S and by virtue of being low taxed in the U S another country gets to impose additional tax on that U S affiliates foreign sub. So effectively there is additional tax paid to a foreign treasury because the US is because the US income is low tax. Mm-hmm. So Treasury looks at that and says, that's not an outcome that we want. If there's additional tax to be paid, we, the US Treasury Department, believe that the US should be collecting that income. And so that's where this minimum top-up tax idea comes from. Right.
0: And I, I will note that there's really no detail on, on the actual mechanics of that. I think you described right. kind of the, the general principles behind this, yes. but Obviously, as we all know, the devil's in the details. The
1: devil is in the details. I will say there is an analogous concept to this in the Pillar 2 model rules. So everything that I just described to you is essentially I'm sort of lifting those concepts Mm -hmm. that are described with more detail in the Pillar 2 model rules and making an assumption that Treasury is proposing to essentially do the same thing. I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption from what they've said in the Green Book. But to your point, Mm -hmm. they haven't said much of anything. So we're assuming
0: that. One question I have is, well, wait a minute, I thought that the BBB included a book minimum tax. Yes. So how, how does this differentiate yes. from the book yes. minimum tax? Well,
1: in, in one notable way, uh, the um, the Pillar 2 rules do not provide any relief from being considered low taxed if you have, for example, research tax credits or low income housing tax credits or other forms of... Tax incentives, so-called general business credits, what Mm -hmm. we call these under the internal revenue code. The book minimum tax that's included in Build Back Better does provide, if you will, relief for those. So in other words, if your rate is low under the book minimum tax that's in Build Back Better, and it's low because you have research tax credits or low-income housing credits or things like that, that would not give rise to an additional tax Mm -hmm. liability. That makes perfect sense if you think about this from the perspective of Congress, Mm -hmm. because of course, Congress enacted those incentives because they want to encourage taxpayer behavior, okay? The Pillar 2 rules don't make any accommodation for our general business credits, research credits, low-income housing credits, new markets credits, et cetera. Um, And so you can fall below the 15% threshold under Pillar 2 and therefore, again, you're a US multinational. You fall below 15% in the US. You are liable for additional top-up tax under the Pillar 2 rules, even though you wouldn't owe it under the book minimum tax in the US. But again, that additional top-up tax that you would un- owe under Pillar 2 constructs, if, you, if Treasury does not introduce this additional qualified domestic minimum tax top on
0: top of, on
1: top of everything else <laughs> they've already done then you face this prospect of right. other countries being able to tax their, the, the foreign affiliates of, of U.S. multinationals. So, Treasury's trying to protect against mm-hmm. that. So, that's fundamentally. Now, what's interesting about that is, and I know this is probably where we're headed next, what, it, what that does not solve for is, okay, but Congress did enact these incentives, mm-hmm. research credits, new markets credits, whatever they FDII. would be. FDII. Right, FDII, uh, Municipal Bond Interest. Okay. All of the, that is to say, when I say municipal bond interest, the tax exemption right. for municipal bond interest, all of these things are there because Congress wanted to incentivize behavior. If the incentive is taken away, the companies presumably don't engage in as much of the behavior. That's not the answer that Congress wants. Treasury, with this qualified domestic minimum tax, says, "Well, we're going to make sure we keep the revenue." but then they have to do something else because otherwise they undermine the incentives that Congress is trying to, you know, is trying to advance.
0: Right. And and that's where they say they will provide a mechanism to ensure that U.S. taxpayers continue to benefit from that. Yes. But no details on what that mechanism might be. Because if you go to the pillar two commentary, it talks about refundable credits. Some of these aren't even credits. Correct. Correct. And
1: I mean, this this is, I mean, we, we talk about a lack of detail, Right. The Green Book has essentially the same sentence that you just described talking about reforming our incentives. And by the way, it's it's not specific on which incentives. It just says incentives that promote U.S. jobs and investment. So you're left to wonder, does that include things like FDII, for example, which we know in last year's Green Book, this administration proposed to repeal. Mm -hmm. Um, So they may not feel as you know, favorably towards FDII as they might towards low income housing credits or the research tax credit. So they don't tell us specifically either the mechanism that they would use to protect these incentives, nor which incentives would be favored under their proposal. Obviously, Congress would have to fill in all of these details, but there's a lot of detail that has to be Mm -hmm. filled in. All you have in the Green Book is at the start of the Green Book proposal, the sentence that you read, and at the very end, it's restated almost verbatim but there's no additional detail. So what are we gonna do? Are we gonna turn these into refundable credits? As you point out, they're not even all credits. So do you turn FDII into a credit and then a refundable credit? Do you turn the tax exemption for municipal bond interest into some form of a refundable credit? And the implications of turning, just think about a straightforward, the R&D credit. Mm -hmm. Turn the R&D credit into a refundable credit. Well, you are gonna dramatically change Who ends up becoming eligible for the R&D credit? You know, a lot of startup businesses that might fail after two, three years, never turn a profit, would never today benefit from the R&D credit because you have to be earning income. Um, That's a policy decision, obviously, that Congress has made in the way they've designed the credit. The question is, or a question is, should essentially an OECD project become the impetus for Congress to fundamentally redesign these credits or will congress say wait a minute isn't that up to us not up to an oecd project to determine how we do this it's an unanswered question but it's fascinating that this is described in the green book as we're going to make these dramatic changes potentially dramatic changes to domestic incentives essentially in response to an oecd project
0: Mm So the other thing it mentions, it says repeals the beat and replaces it with the UTPR. And we actually have quite a bit of detail compared to our prior two topics yes. on, on what that means. Yes. Uh, we've spent a lot of time, again, on the prior podcast. I would encourage uh, uh, folks to, to listen to... Calm discussion on the undertax profit rule, yes. which we've called it now. It's moved, it's migrated from the undertax payments it has, it rule, is. which is more precise. Honesty and labeling. Yeah, honesty and <laughs> labeling. But uh, any highlights or lowlights on some of the descriptions related to, to the UTPR potential?
1: Yeah, I, look, I think the, the biggest thing that leaps right off the page at you is treasury is essentially saying lock, stock and barrel, the pillar two, UTPR, is going to be enacted into US law um, per per this proposal. The Pillar 2 proposal, as we already talked talked about, and I'm sure you and Callum talked about a lot, the Pillar 2 proposals are built off of US GAAP. If you're a US GAAP filer, if if you're a US company, US GAAP. If you're an IFRS filer, it's built off of IFRS. We do not have, broadly speaking in the Internal Revenue Code, any determinations of tax base that are driven that closely off of financial statements. Mm -hmm. It just is not, it's not what we have done. And and obviously listeners to the podcast will all know this. If you file your tax return as a company, you have your financial statements, you have your tax return. You do not pick up your financial statements and, you know, file them as your tax return. There are enormous differences. Mm -hmm. Timing amounts, base amounts are very different between US GAAP and what goes on your tax return. Um, and so, one of the things that's fascinating is that Treasury says, to be sure, with more detail than either of the other things we talked about, Treasury says, we are proposing to do an undertax profits rule that is built off of financial accounting concepts. So, the undertax profits rule, in its typical, and, and, and the Green Book says this, in its typical um, application, would generally apply to foreign headquartered multinationals because Treasury's assumption is guilty will be changed into a per country guilty, and that will essentially be the version of Pillar 2 that will apply for most US multinationals. So for foreign multinationals, let's assume you're an IFRS filer. You will be doing a computation as to how much additional tax you have to pay to the US Treasury Department under an undertaxed profits rule that starts with IFRS, or whatever your home country gap is. That's not a concept that we have really in the Internal Revenue Code. And so this is, and and it's not a concept that we have in, I think, this is speculation on my part, I think in significant part because Congress has always viewed the notion of what determines the base of taxation. We, the Congress, determine the base of taxation, not the FASB, not some other international body like the OECD, but we, the Congress, determine the base of taxation. So it is really fascinating to see the Treasury essentially embrace in a very, you know, um, public, yes, but also very detailed way, these concepts of using financial statements, providing a base of taxation, and that will then become how much of a check you write to the U.S. Treasury Department under the UTPR. So it's really fascinating to see. I mean, okay, in the world of tax geeks, it's really right.
0: fascinating yeah, to yeah. see. I I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing I I, I failed to mention at the beginning, just to remind our listeners that that for for the UTPR provision, it would apply for global reporting groups of $850 million or more. So if you're below that threshold, you wouldn't have to deal with this. But that certainly includes a lot of companies. It includes a
1: lot of companies. And it is really going to be interesting to see, you know, as we think about Congress considering more broadly the ramifications of of the OECD project, how much are they willing to embrace this actually Doug there's one thing i forgot to mention which is i talked about how guilty and per country guilty would generally apply to us multinationals at least with respect to their foreign operations the utpr would apply to foreign headquartered multinationals guilty is not built off of a chassis that looks anything like financial mm-hmm. accounting income right it is us tax accounting principles it is the sort of traditional way congress defines the tax base and so What you would see operating simultaneously is, for the United States, the largest economy in the world, the largest funder of the OECD, an implementation of Pillar 2 for U.S. companies that is U.S. tax accounting concepts based, not U.S. GAAP based. An implementation of Pillar 2 for foreign multinationals Mm -hmm. that is financial accounting. These are not analogous standards, Mm -hmm. right? The, The differences between these two are significant, and it certainly gives rise to a question you know, will will there be pressure to conform these two to come closer together mm-hmm. so that the guilty principles will move more in the direction of financial accounting or the UTPR will move more in the direction of U.S. tax accounting content? We don't obviously know the answer to that, but it's sort of instructive to think about these. They're like parallel universes yeah. operating simultaneously. And that suggests to me that that's not an entirely stable system. Yeah, I
0: agree. And it, I agree. Ultimately, I think a lot of this will be decided by how other jurisdictions view if country by country guilty gets adopted, yes. whether that's viewed as a qualified yes. IR.
1: Yes, yes, to be sure. Yes.
0: All right. So we could spend a lot of time if you have, on the UTPR. <laughs> um, let's go through some of the other provisions and start with a couple of the, the international ones, and then we can hit some of the other relevant ones. Um, first two are really repeats of what we saw um, last year in the Green Book, providing tax incentives for locating jobs and business activities in the U.S.
1: Yes, yes. So, as you mentioned, this is a you know repeat of something we've seen in the Green Book. It's also something that has appeared in prior administrations and prior Green Books. So, I mean, look, the Green Book is many things. It's to a significant extent, it's a political messaging document, mm-hmm. right? I do not believe that the nature of this proposal is likely to cause a lot of change in behavior. But the administration essentially wants to put a marker out there. We want to encourage things to happen in the United States and discourage offshoring of jobs and investment. And so we're going to have a proposal that moves in that direction. So I really look at that as basically a political messaging statement.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other side of that coin, which is included, is the removal of tax deductions for shipping jobs offshore. Right. And, And although there's not a ton of detail provided
1: on that, you are led to believe in reading through the Green Book that that is intended to be interpreted narrowly. Uh, and again, in other words, it's not like, well, we're going we're to sort of look at, you know, exhaustively and try and sweep in every potential deduction to punish people. It's rather we're making a political statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason to make it as narrow as I think they intend to make it is because otherwise it's just unadministrable. How do you determine when a job has been shifted? How do you determine what deductions relate to that, etc.? So, uh, again, political messaging, it
0: right. seems to me. All right, so another relevant international provision was expanding the, defi- or, uh, uh, expanding the definition of foreign business entities to include taxable units, or so really yeah. like 6038 reporting.
1: Yes, yes, and this is a reporting provision, but I think what's interesting about this is it shows how Treasury's thinking is evolving, and of course you see this in the areas of expense apportionment and basking of foreign taxes, Uh, You see it in the guilty high tax exception regulations, a greater level of emphasis on this concept of a taxable unit. In other words, to the extent you have a check the box entity that is disregarded otherwise for U.S. tax purposes. Well, it's not disregarded for all purposes. It's disregarded less and less Mm -hmm. as you see kind of the administration trying to work through some of these issues. Again, guilty high tax exception is another one. Um, basketing of foreign taxes is yet another one where you see these concepts of taxable units kind of emerging as n- not quite an entity, but in many respects treated like an entity mm-hmm. and for purposes of the international rules. And so I think it's, it, what I see, what I take from that proposal is a continuing evolution in the way Treasury is thinking about what, how to approach check the box mm-hmm. and entity election, entity classification in the international context.
0: Mm-hmm. And just a common theme, more compliance for Mm -hmm. taxpayers. I mean, just more more compliance. Yes. Um, All right, another international one was expanding access to the retroactive qualified electing fund elections.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is, on the face of it clearly appears to be taxpayer favorable. I think it's good news. I think one of the issues that a lot of taxpayers wrestle with is getting, so uh, let's take a step back. A qualified electing fund election is intended to allow taxpayers to essentially, if you are invested in a so-called passive foreign investment company, on an annual basis to essentially report income and pay tax, even though it hasn't been realized. And that is, for a lot of taxpayers, an easier regime, a more straightforward regime than that kind of default regime, which sort of has this deferred interest charge, which is, you know, sort of a, it's kind of an ugly kind of punitive mechanism that applies if you're an investor in a PFIC. So, so if you are an investor in a PFIC, being able to make a qualified electing fund election is generally speaking going to be, good. first of all, it's elective. Right? Right. It's going to be a good right. thing because it it's generally makes compliance more straightforward. It's also an election. If you don't want to make it, you don't have to. But getting into the election, particularly if you invest in a PFIC but didn't realize it was a PFIC when you invested in it, can be a challenge. So expanding the scope of what's available in that space, is taxpayer favorable? It's described as taxpayer favorable, but what I think is interesting is, go back to the revenue tables, it's scored as raising revenue. I'm sure that's not incorrect. I'm sure there is some reason why Treasury looks at that and says, yes, we assume it will raise more revenue. But to be honest with you, I don't know what it is.
0: Right. Because normally when you see an elective provision, by definition, it means that the taxpayers are going to choose whatever they're going to elect to pay, presumably the least amount of tax. Exactly.
1: And again, I don't don't know the answer to it. I'm sure it's not a mistake. Um, But it is a curiosity to see an election described as taxpayer favorable in the Green Book. And again, I think it is. um, But nevertheless, a revenue
0: raiser. So what I want to do is some quick hits. We've got okay. about a half a dozen others, with just maybe a quick explanation yep. and, uh, and a thought. So we'll start with preventing base. So these aren't necessarily relevant for international, but certainly relevant for multinational corporations. Yes. Preventing basis shifting by related parties through partnerships. Yes. So look, I think Treasury has shown
1: a little bit of unease with partnerships. Uh, and we've seen this, you know, frankly, even before the Biden administration, uh, but has started to focus more and more attention on partnerships, particularly, of course, within a affiliated group context, Mm -hmm. within a global affiliated group, so two related partners within a partnership. Um, And the partnership rules, of course, are very flexible. Um, And this proposal is really intended to target situations where taxpayers have the ability to potentially to shift basis between assets, and in particular, to move basis from non-depreciable assets to depreciable assets. Well, why would you wanna do that? Well, depreciation is a deduction. Right. So if I can get a deduction for something when otherwise I would have basis on a non-depreciable asset where I couldn't recover that basis until I sold the asset, I'm, I'm gonna get a better timing answer from the standpoint of taxable income. So Treasury is clearly onto that as something they wanna look at more closely mm-hmm. and this proposal really goes at that.
0: Got it. Conforming the definition of control with the corporate affiliation test.
1: I have to call this one a head-scratcher. Me it's too. been around for a number of years. Uh, Forever, was, from yes. what I can tell. Yes. Whatever, as uh, long as I've been practicing, as yeah. we've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Obama administration and several green books had proposed an a, almost identical proposal. Um, uh, a, I should say a substantively identical proposal. So the definition of control for Section 368 purposes, corporate reorganizations, is um, 80% of the voting stock and 80% of each class of non-voting stock. Okay. The definition of control for affiliation purposes is 80% of the vote and 80% of the value. This proposal would say we're going to move to an 80% vote and value standard for corporate reorganizations as well. In other words, if you're going to do a mer- merger and have it treated as a reorganization, you'll have to satisfy the vote and value standard instead of this 80% of voting stock and 80% of non-voting stock. Um, and the stated rationale for this proposal is, well, the existing standard in Section 368, well, it's almost elective. Uh, and we don't like the fact that it's elective. You can sort of you know, rejigger things to fall below 80% of non-voting stock. Well, I find that very curious because the reorganization provisions are elective in so many ways. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they are sort of non-election elections, right? You know, there are so many ways to determine whether you're going to push yourself into a reorg or not in a reorg. This is one of them, but it's by no means the only one. And the, the definition in 368c is not a new uh, definition. This has been around for decades and decades and decades, never sort of seemed to be something that was, I would have described as something that would, is, you know, rife for abuse. Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't, so
0: it's a head scratcher to me. Mm -hmm. All right, so the other one, which is definitely not international related, but wanted to get your comments on, is the minimum income tax on the wealthiest individuals.
1: Yes, yes, so look, this is, it's fascinating and Probably were the podcast in its own right. We obviously don't have time for that. Um, so, obviously, the administration has wanted to go after wealthy individuals and international, globally engaged co- companies. That was true. Biden's campaign mm-hmm. rhetoric was really focused around multinational corporations not paying enough taxes, particularly on their foreign profits, uh, and wealthy individuals. And this proposal really goes at that. What is fascinating about this proposal is it would impose a tax on unrealized income, so unrealized capital gains. Now, that gives rise to real questions uh, at at a constitutional level Mm -hmm. as to whether or not a tax on unrealized income is in fact an income tax because under the 16th Amendment, you can impose an income tax without having to apportion that tax amongst the states. But if it's not considered an income tax, it has to meet an unmeetable apportionment requirement, right? And so the 16th Amendment, which allowed for an income tax, applies to an in- a tax on income. Does a tax on unrealized gains count as a tax on income for this purpose? And certainly, scholars, constitutional scholars can debate that point. But it does reflect the administration sort of continuing down this path of, we want to focus on wealthy taxpayers. And one of the things that they don't like is the electivity around capital gains, right? You could hold on to it for a very long period of time. Indeed, if you don't need the money, you hold on to it till death, and then you get a step on basis. basis. So, so they're clearly looking at that, but they're doing it with a proposal that gives rise to real questions from mm-hmm. a constitutional perspective, and also a proposal that is not brand new, but Congress has consistently refused to embrace the idea of taxing people on unrealized mm-hmm. gains. It just never seems to get traction. It's not clear whether that's because of politics or because of the constitutional issues, but give the administration their due, they're continuing down they're this path. We're it. gonna do it. <laughs> it.
0: So a couple of other things for listeners to note um, that are in the green book, changes to taxation of digital assets, taxing carried interest at ordinary rates. We've seen that one come yes. on, uh, around quite a bit, eliminating like kind exchanges, and then some budget increase for the IRS enforcement. Yes. So my, my, my final question for you, Pat is, what is the likelihood of, of any of this becoming a law?
1: Uh, so in the near term, very low, um, you know, we clearly are looking over the course of the next couple of months at some attempt by the Senate to figure out whether they can kind of bring portions of Build Back Better back to, you know, back into the conversation and move that through the Senate and ultimately get that enacted. Again, everything that's in the Green Book is based on the assumption that the entirety of Build Back Better is going to get passed. So by definition, everything we're talking about in the green book is not something that's in Build Back Better. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so we're talking about things that kind of go beyond Build Back Better. Um, There's no prospect, realistically, for an additional tax bill this year. And we have congressional elections coming up. And who knows what comes out of that? Having said that, Doug, so I you mean, know, do I rate the near-term likelihood of, of these things getting enacted as very high? No, I rate it as very low. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we, you, and I talked today about several proposals that, as we were discussing them, we said, "This is an old one. That's been around for many years." You know, the Green Book doesn't disappear. Right. It just it's sitting out there. Future, you know, next year's Treasury Department, a, a subsequent administration picks these ideas up. We saw this happen in 2017. 2017, the, legisl- the tax reform that passed in 2017 had a number of proposals that had been in prior green books. They got picked up and put into legislation. In-
0: including green books that were from a, a different party Absolutely, as
1: well. Absolutely. So, you know, once these proposals surface, as I mentioned, there's a revenue number associated with mm-hmm. them. There's a dollar associated with them. When you're trying to put together a bill, it's really important to figure out where am I going to get the money from? And so these proposals are not the kinds of things that I think you can say, well, this is not gonna happen, I'll just ignore it, because they're out there, and to the extent there are proposals out there that give rise to policy concerns, or you read it and you say, wow, this would hit me really hard in a way that doesn't seem appropriate or, you know, or fair or right or whatever, it is still worthwhile sort of raising one's hand and having conversations about these kinds of proposals because they don't go away. And when somebody needs to pick something up Three, four, five years from now, you can be sure this green book will get looked
0: at. Whether what will get picked out of it, I don't know, but it will get looked at. Right. The analogy I've heard is that once it's on the shelf, they can just pull it out, they've got the revenue numbers, and, and, they do. and we may see it again. We've and, seen and lots exactly. of examples of that. We see
1: it happen regularly.
0: All right, Pat. Well, as those developments continue, you'll hear more about it on cross border tax stocks. So thank you very much. Always an enjoyable conversation, Pat. Absolutely. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks Pat Brown, PwC's International Tax Policy Leader for joining me on today's podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.